and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. In this episode, we will be discussing diversity and inclusion, powerful coalitions, and particularly allyship. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Pornima Malutra, founder and CEO of Talented Consultancy, as well as Associate Professor at Copenhagen Business School and author of several books on DE&I. Pornima, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Susie, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show and on such an important topic. And Purnima, I know your work on talent and DEI focuses on expanding the understanding and dimensions of diversity and inclusion to empower individuals to be allies, but also to collectively counter the bias that's in workplace systems and to create a more inclusive environment. And I think, you know, understanding who we are, I work on this a lot as well, and understanding who we are and our identity and having a thorough understanding of what DE&I means for me as an individual before I do anything else is the starting point for creating any workplace uh, where, where people can thrive. So we learn through your books, which I love because they're full of your experience and your personal stories as well um, as your research, is that this is a fluid and never-ending human journey and one that we're all on but at different stages of maturity with different, unique, but equally valid identities. And I think as we move into a more networked world where DEI is becoming more prominent, and I think it's a great thing that we've opened that dialogue a little bit more than, than previously, the need for communities and communities of allies is getting more and more important, I think. So this is why I would like to focus on your book, The Art of Active allyship, because I know you've also written on diversity and there's a new one coming out on learning through biases. And I'm quite looking forward to that. I'm going to read it when it comes out. But, you know, the art of active allyship for me is really about creating the collective space where we can have more of an impact. So can we start with that, with that, with allyship? What is allyship for you, Pornima, and why do we need it? Thank you, Susie. And I think uh, you're given a really nice introduction Introduction to it, and also the relevance of thinking about personal action uh, within these communities mm. and within these networks, and it's really where allyship really into the picture. So the way I define allyship is that it's a lifelong process of building supporting relationships with people who are from underrepresented, marginalized, discriminated groups, people who are different from ourselves, who have a different intersectional identity from our own. And the aim of allyship is very clear. It's really to advance and allyship, the way I look at it, it's a verb. And because mm. it's a verb, that means that there are different stages to it, if you'd like. And in my books, I tease it out to say that there's those that are in denial as well. And yeah. when we talk about verbs and actions, we also have to talk about what the opposite of active allyship is. And that's denial, right? People who yeah. believe fundamentally that, you know, we don't need any of this. And we see an increasing group, uh, unfortunately, yeah. around the world who are resisting the need to be inclusive, to be diverse, to embrace diversity, and to make that our organizations and workplaces are at a degree of being deniers. But then there's the vast majority of us who are actually passive allies, right? Uh, we believe in diversity, equity, and inclusion as a core, as a value system, but we don't really know what to say or do. And the question for us that we need to ask ourselves is how do I move myself from being passive active because staying 
passive, being the bystander is not an option anymore. Absolutely. There's too much injustice that we can see. There's too much inequity systems that we mm. need to address. There's mm. discrimination that groups uh, face in every single day in our workplaces and outside our workplaces as well. And so how do we move ourselves from being that by from being to being active is what I look at in the art of active allyship. Mm. And I like the fact that, you know, being a bystander, often we can kid ourselves by saying, I understand what DE&I is. I'm hearing something that's not okay but I don't do anything about it. And I really liked the very clear definition you gave in the book that if you do that, you're not being an ally. Because I think we can kid ourselves that we are being an ally because we understand it, because we see it, and we tell ourselves it's unfair. But if we don't speak up and do something, then it's just the same as doing nothing, which you know, really hit me as I read it. I was like, okay, being a bystander is actually a choice, and it's a choice not to act. And, you know, as Desmond Tutu would say, it's a choice to be the to join the oppressor, essentially, because we're not active in either camp. So you exactly. talk about- there's a complicit, there's a complicit you know, nature with that, isn't it? That when yes. we're actively choosing not to act, we are allowing those systems of discrimination and those biases to continue to propagate and continue to exist. So we're actually making that choice. And I think you're right. Most of us, and I believe in humanity and I believe that we're all, you know, we want to see ourselves, uh, but good people have biases. You know, yes. if you have a brain, you're biased. It's just exactly. how we think. And coming to that realization is hard for many people. Say that actually I uphold many of these systems. I benefit from many of these systems that do not benefit somebody else. And that's the very definition of privilege, isn't it? Another very tricky word, but one that we need to put on the table as well. And so we need to move from passive to active. And that's really the core of what needed for personal action and shifting the needle. And I think I hear a lot of people who just want to learn about something and take a box and then it's done. So I know I'm privileged. I've learned about my privilege tick. But it's a little bit like making unconscious bias conscious. And then what? Because for me, that's that's when the work starts. And, you know, Brenny Brown is always saying, choose courage over comfort. And I think this is one of those situations where DE&I for me is just getting comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> because, because these subjects are uncomfortable. Like you say, if you've got a brain, you've got bias. So everybody has to humbly accept that they have an amount of bias, they have an amount of privilege or not, depending on on their their life track. But once you get there, what do you do? And I love the fact that you have given us seven behaviours to become active allies that can help us use our individual but also collective agency to create these conditions. Um, And it's hard, isn't it? Let's be clear, this work is hard work. Um, Absolutely. But and it's challenging. I mean, I think yeah. even for those of us who are in this line of work, it's not to say that we know all the answers and that we're always getting it right. I often in my keynotes, you know, uh, talk about mistakes and errors that I've made that have taught me so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in, 
And we have to have that courage to step into a space that is uncomfortable, that we don't know enough about, that we're seeking to learn. And in that process, we might make mistakes. We might say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. But seeing that as an opportunity to learn from that, right? I'm a huge fan of Professor Amy Edmondson's work as well around the right kind of wrong. And this is that right kind of wrong, right? You Mm -hmm. want to step into that space knowing fully well that you are quite likely going to make mistakes. But what you're going to learn about yourself and about others and how you can interact better and how you can Mm. work to dismantle systems um, and structures that are discriminatory, that are um, biased, I think there's a huge opportunity there. So we, you know, we live in a world where everything's about perfection. And that really bothers me that we need to see this as a process of progress. That, Mm. you know, if I'm today learned something and doing things differently, more inclusive than I was yesterday or even three hours ago, that's great. Yeah. I'm on this trajectory. And mm. getting there means that I will I will be making mistakes, of course. But seeing mm. those mistakes, those intelligent failures, right, yeah. as uh, uh, Professor Amy Edmondson talks about, I think that's how we need to be seeing these things. And not many of us do, unfortunately, because there's yeah. such a desire to be perfect, perfect allies, whatever that means. I don't think it exists. An active allyship is about, you know, making those mistakes and being courageous and mm. trying it out and, and and having a hypothesis in my head saying that, yeah, you know, this might work and what I say here might be, but I'm not sure. I'm going to test it out and see what I need to tweak. And I think this is where the concept of inclusion and working on allyship is actually bringing in practices that will also help innovation, creativity and productivity. Because if I come back to intelligent failures and choosing learning over knowing, let's put it that way. And as Amy Edmondson says, you know, if you fail, there has to be there is discovery at the end of it. You're testing hypotheses, you're testing hypotheses and and it doesn't always work. And, you know, when I get people saying to me, just tell me how to always answer in the right way. I have no idea how to always answer in the right way. And I really like when you talk about in empathetic engagement, you talk about having an awareness of termite biases. So for me, biases in our mental models is the starting point for any ally leader person who would like to step into a space where they can open a space for other people so can you tell us a little more about termite biases and what they are yeah and maybe we should take a step back because i think you know what are those seven behaviors and where does empathetic engagement kind of fit into that i think is also helpful for the listeners as well so in my book and looking at the seven behaviors i start off actually with a quite a lot of self-reflection because I do believe that to show up as an active ally and lift others, you first need to actually, we all need to be able to take that deep, hard look at ourselves. Mm. So I start off with the first behavior being deep curiosity, a deep curiosity to understand my own intersectional identity and how that differs from others' intersectional identities Mm. and how do other people experience the very same spaces that I'm in? It could be my workplace, it could be my society, my communities. How do they experience those very same spaces differently from how I do because our intersectional identities are different? So the first is deep curiosity. The second is honest introspection, and that's really the deep dive into our biases, right? Mm. Really unpacking it sitting with and i think you know one thing is to talk about at a very 
intellectual, rational level, looking at all the different types of, mm. you know, information processing biases and all of that. We can do that. But I think we first need to start with actually taking some time to spend with the statement, if you have a brain, you are biased. Yes. Right. Just sitting with that. Right. And and allowing that to inter or for ourselves to internalize that. Because, mm. you know, we can intellectually say that I, yeah, okay, I can recognize bias, I can see bias in the decisions around me, but it actually starts with us. And and I think that that's a hugely important part of this. So honest introspection is the second. The third is humble acknowledgement. We touched on privilege, mm. and that's really what this focuses on. Really understanding that privilege is all the things that I don't need to worry about, that I don't need to be concerned about, but that someone else needs to. It's all the advantages that I have because of my doing a not because of my doing, the place I was born, the, yes. the family that I was born mm. into, the kind of opportunities that I've had that were not directly my own doing, but also some of the things that I have been responsible for and I have worked hard for, and they do give me a privilege in society, an advantage in society. But I think privilege is heavily, it's heavily vilified, you know, yes. it's it's Absolutely. seen as a very, Absolutely. very toxic term and and when i work with people who come from well represented groups and you know uh, that could be you know in different contexts that i'm working in it could be white men it could be brown men black men as well you know depending on the context could be white women as well mm. right uh, depending on where we are in the world but whoever is part of that well represented group there is this feeling that oh i don't want to talk about my privilege i have so much shame around mm, that yes. but we need to move ourselves from looking at privilege is something to be away from it being seen as something we have to be ashamed of, but rather something that we can use as our, you know, I put in quotation, superpower yeah. to be able to lift others, to see it Absolutely. as our our strength, to, to be able to do something and be that active ally. So mm -hmm. humble acknowledgement is all about recognizing privilege and that privilege doesn't come from just one source. I think people often have this, you know, image of what privilege looks like, that it is, um, you know, there's so much written about around white privilege, right? Yes. But that's not the only, it's not just your skin color that provides privilege or gives privilege. It is certainly a big part of that, mm. but there's so many others. So I tease that out in the book as well really looking at all the different sources of privilege. I consider myself, I'm a brown woman, but I consider myself to be hugely privileged, mm. right? The, the decisions that my parents took, you know, in terms of where to live, where to bring up their children, uh, what kind of education to get us into, yeah. uh, what kind of activities and exposure they should give us, you know, all of that had a contributing factor to the kind of the, to the person I am, mm, right? And I can't run away from that, right? And yes, part of my skin color might be a disadvantage to me uh, combined with the intersection with my gender identity. But at the same time, there's so many other things that give me privilege and I mm. need to be able to understand that and see that privilege comes from different things. Because I think when we only focus on certain dimensions, then we end up seeing it as a very myopic thing and we tend to put everyone in that particular identity as being privileged and and that's also not a nuanced discussion that we're that we're having around this
So that's the third one. And then we come to, with this work done, with deep curiosity, honest introspection, humble acknowledgement, then I feel we're ready in that sense to be able to engage with others. And that's where empathetic engagement comes Mm. in. It's the fourth behavior here. And in empathetic engagement, you know, I do have a caveat here, that uh, disclaimer, if you'd like, that, you know, it, there there are extreme cases of bias and discrimination that must always be handled by organizations, anti-discrimination policies, and action needs to be taken, swift action. It needs to be done in partnership with legal teams and HR mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. But there are so many biases that are actually embedded in our decisions and in our day-to-day conversations with each other. And that's where termite biases comes in. So termite within quotation marks, right? Thinking about termite biases, it's really another term that I use for microaggressions. Mm. I'm not the biggest fan of the term microaggressions. A lot of people use it, but there's also, you know, Ruchika Tulshan, who's um, a, a very, again, a very you know, an incredible person within the DI space Mm. who's doing some fantastic work. And she's written a Harvard Business Review article, which says that, you know, it's problematic because the very term micro itself suggests somehow that the that the impact of these behaviors is somehow not as serious or not as negatively impactful. But that's far from the truth. Actually, it's these microaggressions, these termite biases that actually seep into our day-to-day language and interactions. And they have a profound negative impact on people mm-hmm. feeling excluded, feeling like they're not part of, feeling that they don't belong, that they're not valued for their mm-hmm. uniqueness. And because so they're micro, term- they get normalized, don't they? Micro they inverted commas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so I like termite biases because let's face it, nobody really wants their house to be infested by termites and everyone's, <laughs> you know, and the problem with termites is that you don't actually know that your wonderful wooden cabin that is infested by termites until it's too late, right? So that's yeah. exactly this. So I was trying I to tease concept. out yeah, yeah. how do how do we get people to think about these biases in that it, that are so subtle, that are hidden in humor, that's hidden even in a compliment. Mm. Oh wow, you speak English so well, mm. right? Mm. And just what is underpinning that? What stereotypes are underpinning that? And so it's even hidden in a compliment. It's hidden in, as I said, humor. It's hidden in casual things that we say to each other. And so it's important for us to realize that, you know, these termite biases do so much harm, very much like how termites do for Mm. our beautiful furniture that we might have in our house. They're the pest that causes the most economic damage of any other pest. So, (laughs) you know, there's a a consequence to this as well, which is also why I like the use of the word, you know, looking at it as Mm. termite biases as well. Mm. So that's where the term comes from. But of course, uh, empathetic engagement really stems from understanding those and recognizing them, but then also approaching and bringing them up when you do recognize them from a place of deep empathy. Because today it could be someone else's bias you're pointing out. Tomorrow it could very well be your own. And Mm. how would you like someone else to point out your own biases? Because our instinctive reaction, let's be honest with each other here, that when people point out our biases, our instinctive reaction is usually, I'm not a bad person. Yes. I have friends who are people of color or I have yeah, yeah. Uh, I know people who are disabled or, you know, that's our instinctive reaction is to step in and get defensive. Right. So how do we approach these conversations from a place of deep empathy? Mm. And for me, asking questions from that 
place of curiosity, not in a passive aggressive tone or even aggressive for that matter, but really saying that, hey, you know, the other day I noticed that you said this at lunch or perhaps during Mm -hmm. a meeting. And I was wondering where you were coming from when you said this. And, you know, certain groups might hear it this way. The terminology that is used here seeps back to, you know, there's a lot of history around it. So may I suggest Mm. Mm. an alternative? And giving that opportunity, that person the opportunity and space to also respond and say, oh, gosh, I'd never thought of it that way. Thank you so much. And, you know, thank you for for offering um, Mm. an alternative as well. That's Mm. that's a nice way. And I'm I'm personally a really big fan of the phrase good catch. I love it. I use it a lot myself. So I've shared it in my book and I often share it in my keynotes as well, because it's Mm. a very practical thing Mm. that when my bias is pointed out, I usually respond with good catch. Yeah. And somehow that defines fuses the tension in that space Mm. because the person coming to me saying that, hey, you know, I I think that was bias at play or that was not okay for you to say that was inappropriate. They're also, you know, probably stressed and and feeling that tension of how do I bring this up? And if there's a power dynamic between us, that's going to be even harder, right? But if I responded with saying, gosh, good catch. Mm. Thanks. Thanks for pointing that out. And immediately the tension diffuses. That person relaxes. I'm also relaxed and open then to hearing what that person has to say. I think there's beautiful things that can come out of it. So so I'm a big believer in empathetic engagement. And that was number four, right, of these seven. Should I continue, Susie, with the remaining three? Yes. All right. So the uh, fifth one is authentic conversations. And I'm a firm believer that we need to be having deeper, more nuanced, more open, honest conversations about this. I think very often we stay at the surface level. Oh, yes, we need to do something about this. And yes, diversity is important. And yes, we should be inclusive. But we're not really going deep enough to actually address some of those tricky, thorny issues around discrimination, around systems of oppression, around power dynamics, Mm. around fear that is involved in all of this. And that's actually an area that I'm looking into in my current research as well. And so we need to have those honest, open conversations. And for that, we need psychological safety, right? We need to feel safe to address our biases, address other people's biases, question decisions, you know, ask people to unpack where they're going with decisions or how they've arrived at a decision so that we can then have those honest, open conversations. So for me, authentic conversation is grounded in that idea of psychological safety to be able to have those conversations. And then number six is vulnerable interactions. I'm personally a big believer in storytelling. And which you comes know, through I, in your book. There's lots of stories in your it, book, which is great. And, and I and I love and it, and I wasn't always like this, right? If I'm being honest here, right? Mm. I mean, as uh, as an academic, I think a lot of my training, I just, and my background comes with being very much grounded in research and mm. theory and all of that, which my work is. But at the same time, I think when I did my TED talk, my TED coach actually, Joanna, she, you know, she ignited something in me around storytelling and the power of a mm. personal story when you're up on stage. And, and I, I, I have not gone back, right? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. that combination of 
you know, deeply grounded research along with storytelling, mm. I think that's a really powerful combination. Mm. But in a practical sense, why do I talk about stories within vulnerable interactions? Is because DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion is not just a rational thing. Sure, we have tons of data that shows us that there's a strong business case. Mm. But actually, if we want to move the needle further, we actually need to tap into people's emotional aspect, that they need to feel for this. They need to feel for others. They need to feel that they want to make a difference. And that's where I think stories come in. And so when I work with leaders, very senior leaders, you know, chairs of boards, mm. board members, executive leadership teams, and when they're giving a talk on diversity, equity, inclusion, or they might be doing an introduction before I'm the keynote speaker, I often ask them to think about a story, something in their life where it shows that they have either got it right or that they've got it maybe wrong or that they're unsure, right? Or that they it's a story in their life. And sometimes many of them, especially male leaders, they tend to talk about their daughters yeah. or their nieces. And, uh, you know, when, when, when they've seen them in situations of discrimination, that really affects them, you know whatever those stories are, right, that are personal to them. But there's a power in stories. And of course, in my book, I have 16 stories written by, very minimally edited, written by these incredible people with intersectional ideas from different parts of the world who share their journey so courageously, but also then ask us to do better. Right? They provide us with those tools or tips or strategies for how we can of course, are extremely powerful. And I'm, I know you have a question for me on yes. that. So we'll come back to that mm-hmm. uh, as well in a moment. And the last one is courageous responsibilities. And that's really about we have to do more. It isn't enough for us just to be skimming the surface with this. We need mm-hmm. to dig deep. We need to address the biases that are embedded in hiring, promotion, develop, talent development cycles. We need to be looking at our product development. We need to be thinking about our marketing campaigns. We need to be thinking about how we're communicating internally and externally. We need to be thinking about customer service. Mm-hmm. Right? It's Think about a supply chains. It's the entire organizational environment. So DEI is not an HR issue. No. It's not something to be limited within HR. It needs to be across that. So those are the seven. Thank and, you. And I hope that that's a good summary for it's the listeners a great, as It's well. a great summary. And um, in fact, it just sums up why so many leaders don't want to step into that space because it is the deep curiosity about who I am what my bias is like. And there are some great exercises that are incredibly simple in terms of the exercise, but quite complex to sort of look at and say, okay, I am this, but I am not that, for example. I found that one very powerful. So I would invite all our listeners to actually do those exercises. And I like the fact that there are exercises at the end of each active behavior to to make you active and, and that experiential, this is really uncomfortable, which it is, of course. But unless it's an inside out job, isn't it? As leadership always is. And I'm taking my definition of leadership as the capacity of a human community to shape its future, not necessarily a title or a box on an org chart. Or, But if I want to have an impact and create a powerful community, then I need to look inside and, and have a look at what's going on. And if we come back to the power discussion, you talk a lot, or there's quite a lot in your book that talks about gaslighting. Now, it's a subject that I'm very aware of, that I learned about through DE&I. And I think it's really important because it's like termite biases for me. It's something that is a daily 
habit that is systemic in organizations and in human communities. And therefore people just say, oh, that's the way it is. So it's therefore implicit, so hard to recognize. But how can we recognize gaslighting in the workplace? And therefore, how can I be an ally, ally to somebody else who is being gaslit in inverted commas? So gaslighting, of course, is a terminology that goes back, you know, quite a while. Mm. And it's it's seen as, you know, behaviors over a significant period of time where people where someone is, their experiences are being belittled, mm. that they're not believed. They are, that they're encouraged to believe a different reality from the one that they experience, yes. right? That is not as bad, that is okay. And that's really what gaslighting in it is. And it often, you know, you can see it in home situations, in personal situations. Mm. Now in the workplace environment, which is where my work lies and my research lies around looking at all of this. So gaslighting shows up in multiple different ways. And it's those things that, you know, when you when you experience something or you think something is uncomfortable in a meeting and you go to a colleague or perhaps even your, your line manager and you say, you know, so-and-so said this at the meeting, I don't think that was appropriate or that felt very uncomfortable for me. And and the person might respond saying, oh, come on, you're overthinking this. Oh, it sounds uh, so familiar. Person, <laughs> right. Um, that person's a good person. I'm mm. sure they didn't mean mm. it that way. Mm. Right. It's the discounting of people's experiences. Mm. That's what and how I look at gaslighting. Now, it's a strong term, right? So yeah. I think uh, it, it also needs to be used carefully I, mm. I think as well. And I think people are quite sensitive to the use of the word gaslighting. But at the same time, the impact that the, that the gaslighting has is tremendous, not just when it happens over a long period of time, even once, Mm-hmm. It can have such a such an impact, negative impact on the person, discounting experience. Mm-hmm. So while I understand that the the research and from a psychology perspective, gaslighting is something more longitudinal, it has to have taken place over. I'm also very conscious that we should pay attention to people's, if you want to call it micro gaslighting, right? <laughs> Where it happens in that moment, maybe mm-hmm. it's the one-off, right? I mean, let's use the word micro here but again as we've talked about today i'm not the biggest fan of the term micro mm. but to give the listeners an idea that it's not just something that takes place repeatedly over a very significant period of time even just that's where your line manager or a colleague says ah you're overthinking this yeah. right yeah you just that feeling you feel it you feel it on your body you feel it in your in your emotions you feel <laughs> that deflation that and you start rethinking everything that you have experienced yes oh i overthinking that oh it can't be Mm. and your hesitancy to bring it up the next time because of the fear of saying that i'm going to be gaslit again someone is going to tell me that my experience of this discrimination my experience of what i saw and felt is not valid Mm. and that's the danger of waiting with gaslighting too long that we don't catch it and mm. nip it at, mm. the, at, at the butt, right? We, mm. want, we want to catch it at the first time it occurs. So that's what gaslighting is for me. And as an active ally, what this means is, first of all, when we're in the situation of being on the other side, when someone comes to us and shares their, their experience of discrimination, 
if it's not our own experience, that's because of our privilege. So we first need to go mm. back to that humble. I didn't see it. Mm. I don't experience it does not mean that it doesn't it didn't happen. happen. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. humble acknowledgement. Yeah. Mm. That it didn't happen. Right. Mm. And so it is so important there to recognize that I'm not experiencing this because that's my privilege at the same time, just because I'm not experiencing it doesn't mean that the person in front of me who's sharing this with me is not telling the truth or is, is, is wrong in some way. Mm. And that is important. And that is what an active ally should be doing to say that, yes, it's not my experience, but I hear you. Mm. I understand. I'm listening to you mm. and I'm going to create a space for you to be a safe space space for you to be able to come to me with this mm. and then if i'm a, if i am in a position of power then i do need to then in a leadership position and in a position of power then i do need to then take that up with whatever the relevant whoever the relevant person is directly mm. or you know if it's very serious then of course getting others involved in this mm. but that is what an active ally does Mm. Right to be able to not discount, to not gaslight, and to create safe space for those open conversations, mm. and to acknowledge the other person's experience as valid, as real, as true, and to create space for that. And I think it brings us back to authentic conversations, doesn't it? And the need for psychological safety. And if you're sat in a meeting with in a position of power or not, and you hear that, it's uncomfortable. But I think you know, questioning. That person who's just said, I'm sure you're overthinking it as to why they think they're overthinking it, as you said before, can be quite, can open quite a dialogue, can't it, and make the other person feel supported. So if you just sit there and think, oh, that felt a little bit uncomfortable, then, you know, stepping into a different space is difficult, but necessary, I think. And I learned a lot from all those different case studies, the stories, people's stories, lived experiences that you have in your book. And it really widened my, um, understanding and appreciation of the intersectionality of people's identities because one is always biased by one's own of course and you can understand that there are others but it's very interesting to look at the different lived experiences of discrimination and particularly something like Vivian Robinson and her choice to be vegan which for me isn't a discrimination but it is now I've read that because they do struggle with people accepting their choice of of lifestyle and, and preference that's where you talk about the allyship comfort zone. And can you tell us more about that and how you get there? I think it's very educational to read how they think we can be allies to them. And it got me thinking, okay, what is the process there for me to constantly be in the allyship zone? So the allyship comfort zone comes from this idea, and it, I bring it up first in my first book, Diversifying mm. Diversity, where I talk about the eggshell zone. Mm. Right? Most of us who are passive allies and trying to be more active in this journey, we often feel that we're walking on eggshells, that we are so scared or we're tiptoeing around. Mm. We're trying to wonder when we're putting the taking the right step and when we're not and when we're going to get it wrong and all of those things, right? So there's a lot of fear around that, you know, in that eggshell zone. And the thing about allyship and active allyship is I see it like a muscle, you know, yeah. when you're, when you, when you're weight training gym, right. The more you engage in it, the more you build those muscle, that muscle strength, those muscle fibers, and mm. you get better and better at it. And you develop that confidence, you develop the strength to be able to continue that 
that work. And for most of us, we start with being actually an active ally with people who are just a little bit different from us. You know, just mm. maybe it's one particular aspect of their identity that is different from our own. And that's where we usually start off it. So the allyship comfort zone is both in starting off with people who are just a little bit different from us and building that confidence and and in exercising the mm. muscle, but then expanding it. So in the true sense of reaching that allyship comfort zone is not to say that we always get it right we're always willing to do something when we see, when we witness, when we experience discrimination, bias, and injustice, that we're not staying in the passive state, that we're actually doing something about it. And that's what the allyship comfort zone is, that moving away from the Mm -hmm. eggshell discomfort, I don't know, I've got so much fear. And how do we move to that, that wonderful zone where we're willing to try and all the things we talked about earlier, right? Getting Mm. it wrong. And that's okay. I'm learning from this. And that's all part of that allyship comfort zone. And that's where I find the the stories that you weave through your book so powerful because they they bring in a completely different perspective each time of identity and, and cultural identity. If I come to active allyship, you talk about a process that goes, the ABCD process. I'm going to amplify, boost, connect, defend. Can you tell us more about that process and how it works and makes allyship more active than passive? Yeah. So the ABCD, is, it's not my work. It's Ron Chow's work when mm. she looks at sponsorship, mm. right? And so she has a very powerful research done around what does it take to be able to, to do sponsorship well? We know a lot about mentorship, right? And, mm. and while... A, there is some research that shows that women are over-mentored and not sponsored enough. Not all women are also even getting the mentorship. So there's mm-hmm. still space for mentoring. Um, and when you look at other intersectional identities, mentorship isn't even there, mm-hmm. right? So there's still space for mentorship, but sponsorship is more active in that sense. So I love Rosalind Zhao's work on this, where she looks at what does it take to be an effective sponsor, right? And what that means, number one, is amplifying. Amplifying a person's voice from an underrepresented, underrecognized group in spaces where they may not be, but you might be there Mm. in those spaces. So imagine in a decision-making committee around promotions, for example, Mm. or talent pipeline and dumping talent and thinking about what the next opportunities are. You might be the a manager or a leader in that space. And you might be thinking about the incredible talent that you have, but they come from underrepresented intersectional identities. And they're not often the first ones to be put on the table Mm, uh, in terms of the names, right? So you're amplifying their voice in that space where they are not present, Mm. right? Right. You're also boosting them into positions where they may not have access to, right? So the amplification comes then with the boosting Mm. of their profile, but also giving them opportunities because you are then in Mm. a position where you can say, hey, you know, there's a new project coming up that actually will give you a lot of visibility and it will give you visibility across the organization with senior leaders in the organization. I think this is a project that I would love to put you on, Mm. booting them into those spaces and then connecting them with your network because because when we look at you know network networking and look at networks very often the people who come from more privileged backgrounds end up having those networks from school from yeah. from education from even being in as part of the 
the groups even within the organization, yes, the right? In-group. So the you yeah, know yeah. the in group in the yeah. organization, the you know I'm putting in quotation marks, but the the boys clubs in in the Absolutely. in the organization, mm-hmm. right? And 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 other groups as well. It's not just uh, men, but it's it's other groups as well. And if people are not part of those, then you're not you're not able to then get those opportunities. Either. Because at the end of the day, bias comes into the mm. picture and we like to hire people and give people opportunities who are similar to us, affinity yeah. bias mm. comes in. And so connecting is really about connecting people from under-recognized, underrepresented groups with your network, right? It could be internally, it could be externally, depending on mm. what's needed. And finally, of course, it's defending. Defending people, again, in the spaces where they're not present, but also even when they are present. Because very often we've all heard of the glass cliff, right? We see Dr. Claudine Gay's Mm. experience, current, really very recent experience. But there's so many experiences that so many intersectional underrepresented identities go through where they're given opportunities that are, you know, those that are so difficult to solve or that are almost impossible situations to be in. And then when they fail, when they fail, and I put fail in quotation marks, right? When the well-represented see them as failing, let's put it that way, then it's seen, oh, we told you so. We knew that that couldn't happen, right? Mm. That wouldn't work out. And that's where the defending part comes in because it's about saying that, hang on, I think there's bias at play here. You're evaluating that person on a standards that are set that are much higher than what any of us would Mm. actually be held accountable for. So I think there's a lot there around defending, even when the person is in the room, right? And, And I think that that's when their voice, you know, I don't know about you, Susie, but I've certainly been in many situations where, you know, in that moment when someone is being discriminatory towards me, I often... I've gotten better at it, but I've often clam up. Yes. Right? I, I don't know what to say. I, mm. I, you know, I'm, I'm almost in a situation where I, I'm just frozen mm. in that moment, mm. and that's where the active allyship comes in because you may not be able to in that moment, but having that ally, someone who's able to say, "All right, I, I hear you. I can see mm. what's happening right now, and that's not okay." Yeah. Right, and that yeah. you're you're holding this person to a standard that is very different from anybody else. That's not okay. That's what the ABCD is, and I personally love Rosalind Chow's work around this. Yeah, yeah, and just sponsoring people in in general. You're right. You know, they you're in a place of emotion, so you don't speak necessarily, and they are you know making it more objective for you. And you know, there is a different standard for failure depending on who's failing, and that's not okay if I look at equity. But which brings me to one of my last questions because time is running. But around we hear a lot about this about fixing the women or fixing the minority groups or and you clearly state you wish we didn't need like employee resource groups and so do I agree with you but we do for lots of reasons because we're not there yet and unless we get real about this subject and ask ourselves these honest questions we're not going to get there so how can we fix the system so I like the fact don't fix the women fix the system don't fix the minority groups fix the system and that is such a huge task to fix the system because systems are made of people and therefore the collective bias is also also has muscle memory to come back to your analogy. So you address it in your book with a list of questions for systemic bias, but how can we act individually on systemic bias? Because it starts with us, doesn't it? It starts with me and my personal agency in calling out things in that system. 
And I think you've you've addressed something very important that whenever we talk about systemic bias, we assume that it's some system somewhere, <laughs> someone's responsibility yeah. that isn't ours because it's the system, of course. right? It's a system yeah. that needs to be addressed, right? But systems are made by us. They're made right. by human yeah. beings. Yeah. They're they're created, built, and upheld by yeah. Us. Yeah. So we have that individual responsibility. And yes, while there's a collective bias in the system, there's also a collective strength of each one of us challenging the system Absolutely. to make a change. Mm. Now, I'm not naive in thinking this can be done really quick. Clearly, it can't. We're in 2024 and we're still here, right? With so mm. much of the systemic issues still at play. So I'm not naive in thinking this can be done quickly. But I do see, in my experience with working with many global companies, I do see the positive impact of what happens when individuals start questioning the system. When the first question is asked, the second question is asked, the third is asked. So ask the questions, right? I think that's such a powerful, why are we doing it this way? Why is this not being addressed? How can it be done differently? Mm. And I think what are the biases that are embedded that is mm. causing us to take this course of action when actually we can see evidence of another course of action mm. that could be actually potentially even more effective? Deep and curiosity. Ask, deep curiosity, <laughs> asking those questions, empathetic <clears throat> engagement and the power, right? And it's not coming from this place of accusing somebody else or anything, but it's just, again, comes back to psychological safety as well and creating spaces where we can challenge the system. And it starts with one person. I was in a board meeting yesterday and it was, it's a board meeting at CBS at Copenhagen Mm. Business School. And it's across, uh, you know, we have faculty, of course, we have administrative staff and and we also have students. And when the students raise something, it is so powerful because it makes us all sit up and think, yeah, why is it that way? Mm. Something needs to change. And then we suddenly had two of us who were in more leadership positions, you know, senior faculty saying, actually, we both can do things about this. So thank you for bringing it up. Mm. And we're going to go and talk to our respective people that we can speak to about why this is the case, because it sounds like something needs to be done here. And something in our policies is not quite right here. Mm. So we need to question. It starts with that question. And that student brought up a question. She brought up she says, this is what the scenario is. Why is it this way? Mm. And there was no aggression in that space. And everyone leaned into it saying, yeah, why are we doing like that? It's not about pointing fingers, no, no. but just why are we doing it like that? Mm. And these things are probably put into place years ago, especially for mm. institutions, right? Mm. And companies that of legacy course. organizations that have been around for a long time. So my answer to your question with systemic is, you look, in my book, I look at so many different aspects, Mm. you know, whether it's the employee life cycle or marketing or product development. There's so many different aspects around organizational life where systemic bias exists. But if we want to fundamentally, if all our listeners want to think about, well, what can I do? It's about asking those questions, just challenging when you say, "Mm, is is that right? Should, can it be done differently? ask the question, because that's where we can shift the mindset around it, that we get people to think differently. Yeah. And then they will ask more questions. <laughs> and then if ask that's the way questions, their questions are effect. received. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And if you have that space, right, again, I'm also conscious that not always do employees 
and even leaders, I would mm. say, feel psychologically safe mm. to ask those questions and question the system. But I think with growing awareness around all of this, and I think if we can ask those questions in the right tone and in the right way, I do think that we open up for dialogue around this, even in a very polarized world that we live mm. in. Mm. And so time is running. I do have one last question for you. What What's the most transformative thing, Pornima, that you have done in this space? If I ask that question, what sort of, because you've done so much, so much research, so many experiences, so much teaching, what's the thing that crops to, that springs to mind? Oh, gosh, thinking of my work as transformative itself is uh, makes me uncomfortable, oh. I think. Uh, but but that, it is. Uh, it, that's is it. Thank, it is transformative. Thank you, thank you Susie. I think at the core of who I am and have always been, I think, even as a child is education, mm. right? So for me is if I can shift people's mindsets towards inclusion through whether it's at university, whether it's in a keynote, whether it's with leadership, you know, workshops that I'm doing, I think that's red thread through all of that is really education. So I see the power of transforming society through education. I'm not and I and I have a huge respect for educators and I think as a collective we are transforming society. I find it difficult to think of myself in that way but but yes, yeah, so if I think of transforming for me the word that comes up it's education. Mm. Mm. And if you were to leave our listeners with one call to action for this subject around becoming a more active ally because we may have listeners who are already active allies we may have people who are thinking oh maybe I'm not active enough or people are thinking ah in fact I don't act at all what would your call to action be for our listeners I think it's hard to put one right I have mm. I, <laughs> mm. I could tell yeah, we've talked about so much of this today but I would even for those of us, I think whether you're starting off, whether you're in this journey or whether you feel that you are already active in this space, I think for all of us, what we can do more of is to question the status quo, mm. question the things around us. And that's something that I continuously do. And I start seeing new things, new things that I hadn't thought about that is discriminatory to a group and an identity that I'm personally don't identify with and hadn't mm. spent enough time exploring and being deeply cured. But so challenging the status quo. Okay. I'm going to leave us, our listeners with challenging the status quo and invite them to start with deep curiosity and read the rest of the seven behaviors and see how they see their journey through that. Bonima, thank you so much for coming and sharing your experiences and your research and your thoughts. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? So I'm not the most active on many social media channels, but I think LinkedIn is where I am the most active. And I do enjoy actually engaging on LinkedIn. I do find it quite a nice, respectful, mm. for the most part. I do think once in a way you do get the odd, uh, you know, attack here and there. But mm. uh, I do think for the most part, it's a nice, respectful environment. So I do engage on LinkedIn. So if you'd like to, you know, and I post regularly. So if you w would like to know more about my work and, and the kind of things that I'm looking at, then LinkedIn would be the place yes okay excellent i'll put a link to your linkedin profile in the show notes thank you Pornima. thank you for a great conversation thank you Susie. thank you for having me